you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. This is a massive, massive subject. And in all honesty, we're going to barely scratch the surface within the next hour as we talk architecture education from who is inspired to access the profession to who can afford to access the profession to the student experience to how placement are managed to how they're paid, how curricula are shaped, how tutors run their courses, schools, department courses, the relationship with the RIBA, apprenticeships. Then we have CPD and lifelong learning. We're not, we're not. I'm going to be honest with you. We're not going to cover it all now. Uh, but we do have a great group of people who are going to try <laughs> to, to outline some of the issues and discuss some of the possible solutions. Dr. Jenny Russell is the RIBA's new Director of Education. Future Architect Front, uh, Charlie Ed- Edmund, is uh, from that uh, education campaigning group. And uh, Paul Crosby is the Architectural Education's Director of Professional Practice. Uh, the Architectural Association is, of course, a school of architecture and I'd like to start by asking you each to briefly describe yourself and what drew you to working in architecture and Jenny I'm going to throw you on the spot there and ask you uh, in in the first instance. Um, It's it's great to be here so thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I uh, am as you can hear uh, Belfast born and bred though educated in Scotland Um, and I was drawn to uh, to architecture um, rather unimaginatively because my dad suggested to me that it might be a better career path um, or a better initial career path because uh, I wanted to do theatre set design. Um, and he suggested that if I start with a, with a broad subject and then specialise. Um, however, 20 years later, I'm still involved in architectural education. Um, I've been involved in programme management. Um, I uh, undertook a PhD, so I'm interested in research. And I've been involved in teaching and the pastoral support of students for that entire time. Thank you, Jenny. Um, Charlie, what about you? Um, How would you describe yourself and what drew you to working in architecture? Uh, Originally, it was definitely because I just thought I wasn't good at anything else. So it was it was mainly that my childhood self looking at uh, an interest in sciences and looking at an interest in art and being like, well, what else can I do with this? I've obviously come to learn that there's a lot that you can do with that. But at the time, architecture was the thing that stood out. And then in terms of the way it developed, um, in in sort of a similar path, I was also interested in uh, research a great deal. So um, after my undergraduate, I sort of found myself drawn to the uh, 
Master of Architecture and Urban Design course at Cambridge, where um, I wrote a thesis about uh, alternative education in Japan um, and the the architecture that facilitates that. And yeah, I suppose in a way that interest in education has sort of continued to the work that we're doing in FAF um, in a more sort of structural sense, looking at how architects are sort of introduced to the profession um, and integrated uh, into it. Thank you, Charlie. And Paul, if I can come to you and ask you to describe yourself and what drew you to working in architecture? Yes, good morning. Thank you. Um, I, I, I think I stumbled into architecture, actually. I mean, I always had an interest, I believe, in the, in the environment. Avoided other professions that I think is interesting that Jenny mentioned. Her father, my, my father encouraged me to go into other professions, which I reacted against, shall we say. Headed off to Canterbury College of Art, initially with the idea of doing painting, or rather registered for the School of Architecture to do my undergrad, and, and had the notion that I might transfer to painting, because that's what I really actually wanted to do. But in the foundation, and I had a fabulous foundation at Canterbury College of Art um, across all of the... Um, fields there and and stuck uh, stuck with architecture um decided then to go into practice spent 30 plus years in practice build building a few buildings and frankly not building many many more such as the lot of an architect mostly and then with mentoring and so on decided that uh, education would be for me so i've been teaching for the past uh, five years or so leading the professional practice program at the aa Thank you. Thanks all of you for that. And Jenny, I'd like to to work chronologically through this architectural education journey. And you've done significant work around sort of exciting children um, about architecture. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I think that's a really interesting way to start moving into talking about architectural education, because often we start at tertiary level. Um, yes, my uh, research has drawn out of an interest all the way through my undergraduate and then into postgraduate study um, of looking at how children engage with the environment. Um, I've been involved in engagement projects where I've taken children to buildings. I've got people to um, introduce them to them. Um, how they engage with their built environment around them. I've written a book for children on how to design a building and looking at the processes that architects have to go through. Um, and particularly being from Belfast, um, I find it really interesting in talking about contested space with children and what it means for how space actually speaks to children about what spaces actually mean and don't mean. Um, and my research moves slightly aside from exciting them about architecture to actually think about how children perceive space. And I'm interested in the fact that we as architects have a responsibility to children because they understand space in a way that might be different to the way that we think we're communicating with them. Space communicates and we have responsibilities to the people that we design for. And that space can encourage um, children and young people to actually uh, be excited about their built environment. Such an interesting point, because yesterday we were talking disability and uh, one of the people we were speaking with was Shani Danda, who ha has a condition which means she's only three foot ten. And she was saying how 
that you know uh, if, if if children experience the space in a similar way to her it's not very accessible so it's really something that we probably haven't given enough thought to but moving on then from that ch child experience into that tertiary level and um, Charlie you felt quite compelled to campaign around that experience of of architectural education can you tell me a little bit about what the future architects front has been about and what the, your campaigning has really been about yeah i mean it's become fairly multifaceted um especially in recent months but originally the campaign was focused at the experience of um graduates moving from university education into practice um specifically looking at the way that the architectural assistant position is um incorporated into the pathway to qualification how much oversight there is for this role um you know looking at things like the number of people who were staying in this supposedly educational role for years and years and years and sort of becoming professional architectural assistants in a way which is uh quite counterintuitive um and yeah generally we we were sort of focused on trying to provide a bit of a like structural analysis on um, why this is happening and organizing momentum around ways that we can uh, exert pressure on practice and architectural governance to try and um, sort of resolve this bottleneck that we were observing. Paul, in your um, in in your role, sort of you know working in an architectural school, um, that journey through part one, part two, part three, where this experience happens in between, um, you know, what would you expect that experience to be like? Um, connected, I think, is a word that comes up. I, I think it's interesting. We started actually chronologically with with Jenny there and. And then um, Charlie talking about practice. And I think we just had to connect up from young people right through to people going in an office. And I don't think that's, I mean, it's a big challenge, but it certainly isn't impossible. Culturally, I think in the UK, we are just not very good at explaining the arts. I mean, as the, as the father of two daughters, having been through infant, junior, secondary and so on schools, we all know that the humanities and the arts are, are just not taught. You, in state schools particularly, that you have to have private lessons for music, for example. So teaching them about space is, is an urban environment is, is an enormous challenge. We just don't we just don't value ourselves enough, I think, in terms of understanding the arts, understanding the, the profession, understanding what architecture could be. And I don't think we, we value ourselves. So I think we have to start right at the very beginning through that journey, making connections with practice, the environment and education. I mean, the worlds of practice and academia are far too far apart at the moment. We really have to make those connections such that, um, that we're preparing young people for going into practice, knowing, knowing what the world is going to be. Um, so how, what, do, what should that look like then to you then, Paul? Sorry, I missed that. What does that connection look like um, for you? 
so in, in what way do you mean in practice? So you, yeah, you'll say yeah. In in reality, you know, we should we should be doing more to sort of make um, architecture, you know, more accessible at earlier stages in our in our working lives, and 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 and, and bring that into um, uh, the secondary and tertiary education. So. So, yeah, what does that connection look like? What what should we be doing more? Well, I think um, it's a really good point. I think action action is the key word here. Um, I think practice has to engage more with schools. Schools of architecture have to engage more with practice. Um, that's that's the first thing I'd say. And likewise, in in schools in the area, I think as a responsibility for uh, educators, we also have. Um, a responsibility to go into schools of young with younger people pre-university uh, GCSEs A levels secondary schools um, pretty much as Jenny was saying there and and help young people to, to understand what the environment is and how they can influence things. Jenny you've just joined the RIBA but you've been in architectural education for a while um you know some of the things that Charlie has been raising uh, and and his other student colleagues around uh you know the 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 issues that the future architects front has raised you know how much have you seen already of this in your architecture education uh, career I think to be fair I I've seen all that Charlie's talking about um, and I think anybody within education will will have seen that and we've seen bad practice but we've also seen really good practice and what we really need to be doing is looking at how we encourage that good practice um, for students and I think what Paul is talking about in terms of connecting up all of those dots of the communication um, between schools um, schools of architecture and practice is really, really important. Um, I think one thing that I'm really interested in, and I'm sure we'll get on to it later in terms of in terms of um, access and access to architecture and the profession, um, is that we talk about widening access. We talk about how we um, get some of those young people into architecture. Part of that is excitement and actually introducing what the subject actually is and we need to be able to communicate what architecture is in a better way into those schools um, and we need to ensure that careers advisors also understand what that is. Architecture is inherently difficult and I you know, it is. Um, there's no two bones about that. Um, it combines the arts and the humanities and the sciences. And we're asking students who come in to actually be able to achieve in all of those things. And that's a, that's a hard ask. But what we're also asking of them is to become strategic thinkers and to be able to apply that strategic thinking in what we're doing. Um, so so that's asking a lot of those students coming into architecture. So within education, we need to be able to do all of that and encourage students in all of those ways. But I guess your point, Charlie, is that you're going through all of this. You're incredibly bright and, and, and well, you know, multifaceted individuals. And then when you get into practice, you're maybe not valued in the way that uh, you feel you should be. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of several different... Um, kind of issues all tied up into that process there's you know the the general business model of architecture in general is um 
leaving a lot of practices sort of charging very low fees. And so that then gets passed down the line to the most junior employees in terms of um, unpaid overtime, low salaries, things like that. And, you know, then there's the way that education um, sort of ties into that, which I think is all to do with the way that we're defining uh, architectural practice. I think that at the moment, um, we're a little too worried about sort of codifying a single meaning for the role of an architect um, and what architectural practice looks like. And I think the consequence of that is that we're all being um, channeled down a very narrow lane, which has very limited um, professional applicability. And, you know, one thing that I'm excited about is that more and more there appears to be groups who are sort of bucking this trend and developing their own niches within the profession. You know, look at um, Assemble have also gone have gone down sort of like an art collective route. Um, forensic architecture are bringing in like, in, uh, like forensic visual um, journalism into their architectural practice. So, you know, that for me is kind of the big picture about how we improve the sort of what I see as I suppose the health of the profession as a whole is to try and sort of move away from this very rigid, um, fairly conservative understanding of what an architect should be and do towards a more plural understanding that can sort of improve the value of the profession as a whole. And certainly, and Jenny, the architectural education piece is where that all starts to sort of acknowledge all of that. So what sort of acknowledgement do you hope to bring now that you're, you know, doing this role? You know, it's quite a big question to ask you. You know, you you, you, have, you and I have sat, spent significant time together, haven't we, sort of talking about that more inclusive approach to education. So how, how, is, how is that approach going to try to feed into some of your thoughts as you move into the role? I, I think that, you know, I suppose previously I talked about accessibility, um, but on the other side of that, we also need to think about the manageability of that and how we actually approach making that route through architectural education um, accessible. It needs to be manageable. Um, and Charlie, I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the roots that we have into the profession. And I think that um, with architectural reform being such a, a current subject at the minute, it's something that we need to pursue um, over the coming couple of years, particularly as the ARB are looking at what an outcomes-based approach might mean in terms of acknowledging the competences of um, a student as they enter the profession, because we need to be able to do that. Um, but I think in terms of making education manageable, we need to look at how we make that manageable for people from different perspectives, from different walks of life, and how we open it up to other people. We have apprenticeships, we have the Reba Studio, which has now been running for about 20 years, which is opening it up to people who um, perhaps have got stuck at part one and haven't been able for whatever reason to be able to make it through into part two. Um, and so we have to understand what that is. But in the broader term, we have to recognise what architectural 
education is and how we actually respond to the pressures that are on students nowadays. We have to understand the fact that so many people are having to work in order to fund their way through education. Um, and so these are a number of the things that I'm really hoping to start to push the door off as I come into this role. If we can talk about that that point that you were making, Jenny, before we went to uh, George Michael and Mary J. Blige, um, about accessibility cost. It's very expensive to become an architect, isn't it? It, it is expensive um, because it's long and there are costs which are associated with studying architecture. There's paying for trips, there's paying for materials um, and all other costs that are associated with, with being a student. So we know that. Um, there are different ways of studying. Uh, there are uh, normal uh, public universities, there are private schools and there are other ways in in for example, the apprenticeship uh, uh, pathway in which students' uh, fees are paid for them. Um, so there's a range of different ways in which architecture can be studied, but we still need to do more to that. Um, and we still need to look at how we can open up uh, a profession and an education, which is um, inherently expensive. The um, architectural education, um, architectural association is a very uh, prestigious place to study architecture. But Paul, it is incredibly expensive to go to to your school. Uh, it, it is, yes, or um, uh, a little over twice the typical university fees uh, in the UK. But um, let's not talk about a single school and the particularity. I think there's a general point here to be made about the cost of education and and. Jenny quite rightly says it's 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 a long education. I I personally don't think it should be shortened, but therein lies the issue. And I I'm, I'm in the privileged position of being an examiner um, on the Part Three programs, which is the gateway to the profession. It's the it's the leading to registration. So I run a course at the AA. I, I in my time at the AA, I must have seen over. I counted the other day about five hundred students. I examine on other programs, and as part of that, I read a lot of career appraisals of students' reviews of their time in education. And it's in, I, I mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate this, but at times it's harrowing. I, I think we really have to address education generally. Um, on the subject of cost, I, I bring it back to a word I used earlier, which is value. And I, I really do believe that part one, the first three years of the degree, is a very good all-embracing, as Jenny said earlier, humanities, the arts, the sciences, it provides a really good beginning for most young people to go into architecture or another career of their choosing. The issue for me is part two. Um, and it is for most students, and I believe it's for the profession and employers, because it's, um, and, to, and to paraphrase, over a thousand essays I must have read, more maybe, it's more of the same of part one. And I think going back to what Charlie was saying earlier as well, there are different ways of practicing. And I think we have to get away from the stereotypical, in inverted commas, traditional pathway into what a, a small to medium practice is. And think of architects and architecture and education in a different way. And, and think of it more in terms of research. 
you know, part two, the, the second two years, for those of people listening who don't understand that, who don't know that, part two is the postgraduate research. And in most subjects, the two years after the degree leads to specialization as opposed to generalization. And I think from, from my point of view, that's, that's the area that I think we really do have to focus on. And as Charlie said earlier, you know, you study for five years, if not six, um, you then go into a job where you might be on 25, 26, 27, 28,000 pounds a year. I mean, that has to be addressed. How do you think this can be addressed then, Charlie? I mean, what, what do you think can be done differently around how, how um, that level of, uh, is, is paid? Well, yeah, £25,000 if you're lucky. Um, I think average starting salary for a part one is closer to 21. So it's, it's, not, it's not great. Um, I mean, I think the way that um, the accreditation is structured right now is I, th I think it has a very uh, 20th century mindset where we're looking at a profession with that used to have things like fixed fees used to have a great deal of public work um, that it could rely on and so maybe then in that context a very sort of rigid gate-kept uh, understanding of architect and architecture um, was a way of preserving value maybe but now we don't have um, either of those. We don't have uh, public work, um, apart from a very, very, very tiny percentage. Um, and we don't have fixed fees. So from where I'm standing, the only sort of logical way to try and uh, increase value is through, uh, yeah, a, a more plural understanding of architecture to provide more value through different types of work that we are sort of equally capable of um producing yeah if, if we only allowed ourselves to sort of look beyond this traditional practice um understanding of the profession i think the ways that we achieve that are sort of from from the bottom and from the top so from the top i think it looks like things like the arb's um reforms that are going on right now but at the end of the day, there's only so much um, understanding that regulators, um, sort of bodies like this, there's only there's only so much understanding they can get from their somewhat removed position. So that needs to be met by grassroots organizing, making these issues clear and communicating them effectively. And in an ideal world, it would also be met with a strong... Uh, union presence in architecture as well because then that doesn't give employers uh the opportunity to ignore the problem because their entire workforce is telling them no you have to sort it out and certainly that's um that point that you're you're all making about value um is is one that the, the we we are determined in in our society to look at value through this lens of pounds and pence rather than the value to our society, the value to our environment, the value to of people, um, and that's a massive ideological shift in our whole you know world really, and and certainly you know in in the UK in the way that we view architecture. I mean, Jenny, just listening to um, to, to Charlie's points there, you know they. It is, it's expensive to train. 
um, you know, you, you, even if you're just going to a regular university, but that's at least nine grand a year, you, you plus all the costs that you talked about. We're talking coming out with what, 60 grand's worth of debt sometimes? I mean, yeah, Carly? I'm probably sitting around 70 or 80 Six, right now. Eight, wow, wow. And that's a massive burden, isn't it, to be to taking? So, so the apprenticeship scheme, is there enough support in practice and government support and indeed our IBA and ARB or whatever other support around to help with those alternative um, paths into the profession. And then speaking to Pooja's point earlier about inclusive recruitment, are those paths into the profession valued by practice? Um, from the information and from what I've seen so far, um, we are seeing more and more schools of architecture setting up apprenticeship pathways. So the opportunities seem to be there and seem to be out there. Um, the uh, support that is and the, the financial support that's there in terms of the funding for undergraduate for the part one or the level six apprenticeship pathways has just been increased. So there there are moves to encourage and to further this as a, a way of opening up um, education in architecture and as a pathway into the profession. Um, so so there are there are. Uh, there is movement going on. Um, it, you know, it, it's an issue. Um, we're aware that it's an issue. Um, as the RIBA, uh, we are doing some things as well as encouraging um, and pursuing the apprenticeship pathways. Um, we run a number of bursary schemes for students. Um, within the last year, we have supported students probably to the tune of about £280,000, which is a huge amount. We know that many students um, are sitting in debt, um, but we are actively trying to pursue that um, to support students to the best of our ability as a, an education department and as an institution. Um, we've also um, been implementing the compact. Now, the compact is an agreement between um, between student, professional, the, the practice um, and also the professional studies advisor, um, who the, the School of Architecture, to have a series of agreements and commitments um, within that process um, in seeking out good practice. And we know that some of what Charlie has um, encouraged and pushed for um, has is a part of that compact that has um, that's currently going through um, a trial process. Um, and we are encouraged um, by what we're hearing from that. Um, so so we're actively trying to um, work with students, work with um, professional studies advisors and schools of architecture and also the practice to see good practice on all sides from the schools, from the students, but also from the practices themselves. Paul, Paul, in terms of, you know, you're the director of professional practice, I suppose. Uh, you know, what do you want to see from from, you know, that uh, triangulation of of students and, and professional body and um, and school. No, it's, it's a really it's a really good point. And coming back to something Jenny said there about the compact at the AA, we have, with all of our students heading off to a year 
I don't know why we call it a year out. It always worries me that that expression. I, I still use it, but I haven't found another term. Year, it's almost almost as though we're escaping from something into something. But let's call it the year in professional practice, year three and year five. We have something similar at the AA and have had for a few years now. We have an agreement between the student, the practice, and the AA, whereby the 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 practice engages in that process then they're, they're not just young people heading into a practice to make the coffee tidy the library and maybe occasionally do a rendering and they might be even granted the possibility of attending a meeting we, we want the student to be a continuation of that learning process and for the the practices to 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 value the young person engage them in the whole process of design one thing I'd like to do, Marsha, I would like to ban the word internship. I mean, I think everybody at the AA knows me now. I use the word internship in my talks. I did with some year three students the other day. I had a little meeting with a group of them. They're already thinking about their year in practice after in July next year from year three. They were talking about which sort of internship should I go for? I'm saying, please do not even think about using that loaded term internship. Let's talk about this, about being a proper position. And I think that education has to become, I mean, quite literally, has to begin in the schools of architecture. So these young people will be going into the profession as a practice and they will be practitioners very soon. And we have to stop thinking about it, uh, academia being academia and practice being the so-called real world. I, I want there to be, it goes back to the word connection I mentioned earlier. I don't want it to be seen as we're in academia and then it's the real world of practice. I want the word profession to straddle both. And I think that's where we have to begin in terms of educating ourselves as well as young people and then the professionals. Charlie, uh, let's talk about actions and, and, and what we want to see done. You know, this is a great opportunity to really say to practice and to say to architecture in the built environment, this is what you need to do. This is what you know, those who, who, who've signed up to the Future Architects Front and supporting your work want to see. What would you like to say to them? Well, I think something that we're seeing again and again um, from, you know, these older, slightly fading issues of like unpaid internships, uh, fading at least in the UK, um, to current issues of um, unpaid overtime, uh, overwork, is that um, at the end of the day, um, the place that architectural assistants work, as much as we may like to dress what we do up as studio, atelier, uh, collective, etc., they are businesses. And a business, at the end of the day, is an organization which exists to generate profit. So I think there's always going to be a limit in terms of these conversations around how can we convince business to um, not center profit in their decision-making process. So for me, it's not so much about convincing practice directors or convincing partners to um, act in a more philanthropic way. I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's coming at it from the wrong angle. I think the way to address it is to build power in employees, graduates, and sort of 
force that change that we want to see. So this is why, you know, we work so closely with the Architecture Union, UVW SOAR. This is why we're always interested in getting into universities and talking about the actual economic conditions under which architecture is produced and um, which sort of capital flows through the profession. Um, we'd love to do a talk at the AA by, uh, about that, by the way. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, for us, it's, it's not so much about um, this top-down approach. It's more about building solidarity and power um, at the bottom and making that change uh, unavoidable. Paul, you want to respond to that? No, I, I just want to say to, to Charlie, we have had uh, UW and SOAR came in to speak on the Part 3 programme just a few months ago on September, and it, and it was very well received. I mean, I think the problem, I suppose, is coming into the AA it's, uh, and on the Part 3 professional practice programme, you're, you're pushing at an open door. And I think the, the audience maybe is, is, the, uh, is the practitioners more um, than, than us as young, uh, I was inc almost including myself as a young person there. Um, than, than <laughs> Sorry, we, I didn't mean to scoff. <laughs> yes, yeah, thank you very much. But Paul, you know, uh, just on, on that point of, 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 you know, power, I suppose, um, and, and, and giving that to, do you feel that the culture within you know architecture education is you know the right culture to be sharing then with the rest of uh, the profession is that is that growing in the right way oh my goodness there's a big subject i think the seeds of cultural behavior marsha are, are sown in the schools of architecture from day one i mean i think you know we at the aa we're we're a single subject school but having having taught at universities and at um, and studied at universities where you're part of a campus and you see other students i think i think it's a generalization but i'll say it anyway that most students on other courses always slightly feel sorry and concerned for the architecture students because we're the ones who look exhausted because we're doing so many hours and the pressure and i, and I don't want to be over I don't want to overstate it, but pressure, stress, mental health in architecture students is an ever-developing subject and one that demands further investigation and research and an understanding of what it means. And I think we have to address these all-nighters that becomes de rigueur. It becomes almost standard practice to work for 48 hours to prove how good you are. I mean, that it surely has to be about quality, not quantity of hours to produce more and more work. So the seeds of what Charlie was talking about there of overtime, unpaid work, I mean, not so much in university, of course, but those that quantity of hours is sown. That, that culture of be bad behaviour, let's say, is mm -hmm. sown in the School of Architecture. And, um... and I, I, I think... We have to get away from the final production and, and make it more about process, not not about I have to be up 48 hours to produce a final rendering. Yeah, and certainly um, the, the, it wasn't by chance I played Night Shift by the Commodores earlier. I mean, Jenny, you know, th this is definitely an area that uh, needs to be addressed. We, we spoke with Claire Nash a, a couple of days ago about, about you know, making that that different kind of culture. I mean, how, how does even the RIBA lead that kind of different culture creation? Uh, so, Paul, I entirely agree, um, and I've just I've just published through the RIBA um, two guides on 
really that look into mental well-being among students and early career architects. It was led by Alan Jones, who invited me to work on that with him. Um, and I worked with writer Matt Thompson on producing these guides, which are very short, but they address very forthrightly the issues of mental health and well-being. And I'm aware that it's, it is from the schools of architecture where these seeds are sown, but I'm also aware that it's not necessarily always from the academics and from the teachers and tutors. And in fact, in a number of schools that I've been in, I've seen tutors actively trying to encourage students not to engage in this practice. But we're seeing that this badge of honour of doing all-nighters is being passed down from student to student. Now, don't get me wrong, there is bad practice being pushed on students to work harder and harder in institutions. So I'm not saying that it's not there, but I'm aware that there is an ingrained understanding that as an architecture student, you have to work all the time, which then is feeding into practice. I'm very aware that we need to encourage and teach students to understand how to develop their skills to work better as opposed to work longer. And we need to work hard at this to ensure that students understand um, that that's really important and that maintaining good mental well-being is critical. There's so much more to say and talk about here. Like I say, we'd barely scratch the surface, but by starting the conversation, we can really give air and light to the issues that we must tackle. We've been talking architecture education with the Director of Education here at the RIBA, Dr Jenny Russell, from the Future Architects uh, Front, Charlie Edmund and Paul Crosby, the Architectural uh, Association's Director of Professional Practice. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. For more on how we're doing equity, diversity and inclusion, and if you'd like to join the REBA, head over to architecture.com.